0: Last week, I began what's going to be a very short series, I think probably finishing next Sunday, where we've been thinking together about what it means to be a communicant in a church like this. I hoped that with this short series, we'd be able to clear up confusion that I know there is. A lot of people just aren't sure what that means uh, to be a communicant. So hopefully, we'll clear up that confusion, and hopefully— anybody by the end of this short series would be in a much better position to think of whether, whether being a, a communicant or becoming a communicant is a, a thing that they could be appropriately thinking about at, at this point in their life. Why am I dealing with this on, in a Sunday morning service? Normally, I would deal with this in a communicants class. Well, it struck me that for a start, unless You know what's going to be in a a communicants class. You don't know whether you should come or not. So in a sense, it's a a world that you need a bit of an introduction to from the outside. So that's why I'm keen to do that here uh, this year. Now, I have a couple of very specific reasons in addition to that why I'm keen to do this. Some people here, and I won't ask for a show of hands, have been communicants for 50 or 60 or, or maybe more years. Uh, I don't know whether you can remember anything at all about the process you went through to become a communicant. So it seems to me that for those of us who've been communicants for a long time, uh, there'd be great value in just rethinking uh, some of the commitments that we made and some of the meaning that there was in that, that time when we became communicants. So I'm thinking of people in, in that place And I think there's another reason why it's useful for us, particularly in this church at this time, to give a bit of uh, time to this. And that reason is that so many of us have come together here from so many different church backgrounds in recent times that it's quite likely that there's a a real variation between what some of us experienced uh, in preparation for communion and what others experienced it's quite possible that some of us had wonderful uh, preparation uh, as we came to, to be accepted as communicant in, in whichever church we were in. It's also possible that in some cases not very much preparation and thought was given to that at all, that it was treated maybe slightly more casually, something of a rite of passage in church life, something that you, you just drifted into. Either way, if we spend a bit of time here together, then we can, we can have a, a consensus among ourselves of what it means to be a communicant in this place and at this time. So, those are the kinds of, of things that I have in mind as I present this stuff to you these three weeks. Before I go ahead and, and we do some teaching more again about what it is to be a communicant, I want to, I want to deal with a very practical issue and that is how would a person become a communicant in Kirkpatrick Memorial at this point in time? Well, if you notice on the back page of the bulletin, there's an explanation of the process that we're going to follow this year. It's a little bit different than usual. Normally, I would run a communicants class for about five weeks on, on given evenings. I would invite two categories of people, really, to come, all of those who are already communicants, but have joined our church in the last year, I'd invite them. And all those who wish to become communicants or wish to consider that, I'd invite them as well. This year, we're going to do things slightly differently because I'm going to teach the bulk of the material in church services. We're not going to have a five-week series. Instead, what we're going to have is an evening for all new communicants, and that'll be on Thursday the 22nd of May. So please bear that date in mind if you're someone who is thinking of being included in our new communicants group for this year. Let me just reiterate, anyone who's joined us since last June, if you already are a communicant, I'd love you to come that evening because it'll give us a chance all together to think one last time about what it means to be a communicant. So even if you already are one, come that evening and that means we'll all be together. If you're somebody who's thinking of becoming a communicant for the first time, definitely come that evening. Plan to be here. There's a sign-up sheet in the vestibule for for anyone to sign, uh, anyone who would like to come. All those who have joined us in the last year, and if I know that you're already a communicant, your name's on that sheet. I'd like you simply to tick it to confirm that you're able to come. But anyone else who who would like to become a communicant, communicant, you're welcome to sign that for the first time. Brilliant. Now that I've confused everyone, um, I'll, I'll have a wee sip here and we'll... Let's get back now to the material that we began to look at last week. We began to think together about what it is to be a communicant, and we decided to keep it very, very straightforward. We decided to use the, the vows that every communicant is asked to make as the basis for a few short studies uh, to see, see what's going on with communicant membership. I, I hope I'll be able to show you a few PowerPoint slides at this point. Yes, we have the first slide up here on the screen. There are four separate vows. And here, here are the first two for you. Do you believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Do you promise to join faithfully with your fellow Christians in worship on the Lord's day and to be faithful in reading the Bible and in prayer? Do you promise to give a fitting proportion of your time, talents, and money for the church's work in the world? Do you promise, depending on the grace of God, to confess Christ openly, to serve Him in your daily occupations, and to walk in His ways all the days of your life? Last Sunday in our communion service, we spent just a few minutes thinking about the first of those commitments together. Uh, I'm trying to move this on for you, but there we go. That's the one we looked at together last week. Do you believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? We noticed that a communicant is somebody who believes in the Trinitarian God, the God revealed in the Bible, but we didn't stop there. This isn't an intellectual thing. It's not a thing of head knowledge. So we moved on there to see that a communicant is someone who can confess Jesus Christ as their Savior. This is a person who can admit before God their their sinfulness, their need to be rescued, but also a person who believes that Jesus has done that for them and has responded to him. So a person who can confess Jesus as Savior, but also a person who can confess Jesus as Lord, a person who understands that, that Jesus demands us, demands of us that we give up our lives and follow him, that we set aside any agenda that makes us the boss, us the center of our lives, and that recognizes, know that he is our Lord and our boss. Let's move on this morning to our our second of the four communicant promises. And although it's framed in one promise, it actually has three distinct elements. You'll see them there in the yellow. Promising to be faithfully attending worship on the Lord's Day, to be faithful in reading the Bible, and in prayer. Although those look like separate activities on the first glance, I think it makes sense that they're grouped together here because they're probably the three key disciplines or practices for disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. Being regularly present at worship, using our our Bibles to hear what God has said to us, and praying so that we in turn can speak to God. Those are very down-to-earth normal practices that should be at the core of any Christian's life. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning dealing with these three disciplines. By the way, I could probably teach a whole series on each one of these three individually. Don't don't leave here this morning frustrated that I didn't say this thing or that thing or the other thing about Bible study or prayer. Entirely impossible. What we're doing this morning is we're building up a picture of the, the commitments that communicants make and the lifestyle that, that we enter into as disciples of Jesus Christ. So let's, let's begin with the first. I'm having trouble with my technology here this morning. The Bible gives us lots of images of the church. The Bible talks about us as the, the people of God there in 1 Peter chapter 2. I think this is wonderful language. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who belong to God, okay? The church is also the body of Jesus Christ. And there's that teaching about how although we're different, although we're many, we we belong together and we're one body in Jesus. We are the body of Jesus in the world. We're the way in which Jesus lives on in the world. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. This, this is incredible. This is the biblical teaching that anyone who wants to see God living in the world today should seek out their local Christian church because that is the place where the Spirit of God lives in this world. That's, that's what the Bible teaches about us. Now, when you take those kinds of images together, it gives you a, a pretty impressive Picture of the church, and I was thinking about this. I think it's dead important that we hang on to those images. Why? Well, because when you come to church week by week, it doesn't always feel as exciting and as dramatic as as this. Whenever we're sitting in church and we're bored out of our minds, maybe like this morning, when the pew seems too hard. Uh, and the draft seems too cold, whenever you can look around you and there, there are at least three or four people in your line of sight who are doing your head in. at those moments, it's important to remember this. It's important to look beyond the immediate and to remember what God says about his church, his people, those whom he's gathered to himself the body of Christ the place where his spirit dwells folks it's important that we we have that, that wonderful grasp uh, of what the church is the church then because it's the place where god calls us to be is a is a place where where we really ought to be. Christianity isn't an individual experience. As soon as we respond to Christ and the call to follow Him, we respond to an invitation into a family. The two go hand in hand. There's no no great discussion about that for the New Testament writers. There's a famous verse in Hebrews that, that guys like me, ministers, love, and they use all the time. And I have it here on the screen for you. Ministers use this verse to keep people coming out to church. It says there, let us consider how we spur one another on. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. Ministers preach this verse quite a lot, and as I say, they use it to to keep people coming to church. The irony certainly isn't lost on me that ministers preach this to the people who don't need to hear it because they're here. You know, there's something funny about the way in which this verse often works itself out in church life. But there's another aspect of this, this verse that I find more challenging and much, much less humorous as a minister. There's an implicit message here that the church ought to be an encouraging place. Too many times I think this verse is used to cajole people and to drag them out to fellowships where, quite frankly, nobody can remember the last time anything encouraging happened. That's not what this verse is about. This verse is talking about a Christian community where if you were present, you would find encouragement. If you you miss out, you'll miss the encouragement that there was on that week or, or that particular occasion in that context, it's entirely appropriate, I think, for the minister or the leadership in the church to say, come on, don't miss worship. You'll miss out. So, so I'll I leave that verse with you. Of course, uh, I, I want to affirm it as it stands. Please do continue to be regularly at worship, but I want to see also that, that there's an accountability for us as leaders in the church to make sure that this is an encouraging place. Having said all that, there's hardly a week that goes by when I don't meet somebody who says or or hear of a Christian who's decided to stop going to church. They have found that they're they're so disappointed and so disillusioned with church that they just can't go anymore uh, and they stop going. Now I have a great deal of sympathy with people who have become disillusioned with church communities. I, I'll be honest and say there are many times in my life when I have been, and maybe still am, very disappointed with the community that gathers, calling itself the church. But I've never felt the liberty of giving up. I've never felt the liberty of opting out, and I think it's because of a, a commitment to the teaching of Jesus Christ, his own his own life, and then the teaching of the New Testament. If you you read the New Testament and look for the, the community aspect of it, it blows you away. More than 50 times the New Testament talks about one another or each other. We're commanded to love each other, to pray for each other, to encourage each other, to admonish each other, to greet each other, to serve each other, teach and accept each other, honor each other, Bear each other's burdens, forgive each other, sing to each other. I always find that one a bit scary. I I don't know if I'd be blessing people by singing to them. Submit to each other, be devoted to each other. Over the years, I think I've discovered a a theme there. There's a one anotherness that runs right through the, the New Testament, and it's left me with a very simple conclusion. There's so much stuff here about what we can only do with each other that you cannot obey the Bible on your own. No matter how holy a person presents themselves, no matter how committed to God they present themselves, if they're in isolation, they aren't obedient Christians because the whole drift of the New Testament is calling us to each other. folks, when a person becomes a communicant, they promise to be regularly part of the worshiping community. When a person becomes a communicant, they promise to be regularly reading the Bible. And that's, that's quite natural, really. The Bible is God's word to us. It's the place where we believe that God speaks to us. So, as we want to, to worship God, as we want to get to know His Son, Jesus— It's the place where we will come. We'll be all ears. We'll we'll be ready to hear what God says to us in the Bible. Most of us find it difficult to regularly be reading the Bible. Let me begin by assuring you, that first of all, that the Bible is useful. In 2 Timothy, Paul tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed, it's useful in teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible teaches us everything. It teaches us how we find Jesus Christ and salvation in Him. It teaches us how we follow Jesus. But it teaches us, and this is the part we're maybe not so familiar with and, and need to we need to broaden our horizons. God's Word teaches us wonderful wisdom for everyday life. In the last few years in church life, I've been able to teach very detailed series on your workplace, straight from God's Word, how to be a Christian in your workplace. Last year, we did an extended series on the Bible, or sorry, on the family. God's Word's full of stuff of how we live together in our families. In a couple of weeks' time, I'm going to begin again a series where I'm, I'm going to look with you of what God's Word teaches about money. Don't think that the Bible is only a resource for, for some realm of your life that you think is your spiritual life. Paul says here that we can be equipped for every good work. We can be equipped for the whole of life as we spend time in God's Word, maybe you haven't lifted a Bible at home for months or for years. You don't think of yourself as a Bible person. Well, this morning I don't want to to come and be critical of that. Rather, I want to show you how you already are, maybe in a small way, a Bible person so that you could be encouraged to move on. We, we take the Bible into our lives in, in many different ways. We, we take it in by hearing. This morning, by watching what comes up on the screen, by listening to the, the passage that we read earlier, by, by listening as I speak, you're a Bible person. You're somebody opening your mind to God's Word. And maybe, maybe you haven't taken that seriously, that you're already a person committed to god's word so in hearing and in reading in studying some of us go to discipleship groups or to other small groups Uh, we spend time gathered around god's word trying to work out its implications for our lives you're you're a student of the bible you've already started to be a bible person And, and with with a bit of thought you could see how that might develop in your life Memorizing. We live in a a culture, certainly the one I grew up in, my church experience, memorizing something that children do, memory verses. Many other churches, both throughout time and throughout the world today, recognize that that's that's not appropriate to think of memorization as only for children. Memorizing God's words, just a wonderful way to to bring the words and wisdom of God into the very core of our being and closely linked with memorization's meditation being the kind of person who who doesn't listen to sermons and then switch off who doesn't do a quiet time for a slot on a on a on a day and then forget but rather a person who Who walks into life with with maybe a a thought from God's Word always before them. Maybe it's like a, a bone. You take it with you like a dog and you chew it. You chew it all day. Because it's only as you chew it and you chew it over again and more and more that the goodness of it really comes out. So meditation is another way of enjoying God's Word. Let me suggest a few simple steps if you wanted to, to get back into to reading the, the Bible at home. Um, could we advance by one there, guys? Thank you. Daily Bible reading, just pray and ask God for help. There's, there's no prayer I don't think that God is more keen to answer than to, to show himself to you in his word. Try and work out what these words first meant, a bit of understanding of what they first meant. Don't don't read the Bible and expect that the, the prophet Ezekiel is speaking directly to you today. Try and work out what he was saying in his context and then move to interpretation. What does this passage mean to me now? And the last part is, I guess, the simplest to understand and the hardest to do. I've grown up in a tradition where studying the Bible has been stressed and, stressed and stressed and stressed and stressed and stressed. And not very often have we decided, well, let's try and do the things that we learned. Jesus was very strong in this. He said, don't, don't be hearers of the word only, but, but be doers. I think one of the ways in which God's word will become most exciting in our lives individually and as a congregation is when we start doing some of the things that we learn. Reading the Bible is a huge area, and it's something that I, I want to, to do a bit of teaching on in the ongoing life of our church in the future. Today, all I've done really is flagged it up. I, I've probably uh, frustrated more than helped, I guess. You can't, you can't talk about Bible reading in, in a few minutes, but I, I I want to I want to just remind you of the possibility that that you could be a person in God's Word. That, so a communicant is regularly at worship, a communicant regularly reads God's word, and finally, I hope I can get this, a communicant is regularly at prayer. Prayer, you know, what is prayer? I could give you as many definitions of prayer as there are minutes in the day. I've fired a couple up on the screen that I found particularly helpful recently in my life. One is from Dallas Willard. He talks about prayer being talking to God about the work we do together. I love it because it's so every day. God is working in this world we love him we want to be involved in what he's doing so we spend time talking to him about that we talk to him about our lives we ask for his help we share our frustrations it's very down to earth james houston is the founding professor of regent college where i did my theological training he wrote a book about prayer which helped me greatly a number of years ago and still does it's called Prayer, the Transforming Friendship. Quite an interesting thing happened a, a while ago. They they were republishing that book, and the publishers didn't like the title. It wasn't high-powered enough for them. It wasn't high-energy. It wasn't Church 2008. So they changed the name of it to the, the Transforming Power of Prayer. Because there's a lot of talk about prayer these days, that prayer's a... It's a, a way in which we get power from God. It's a, a mechanism of manipulation where we learn to twist God's arm up his back and get what we want out of him. James Houston was, was so opposed to that small change in the title of his book because he, he said that prayer is a, a friendship. Think of your friendships. No thing in your life changes you more than the people with whom you spend your time. What if Christian people understood themselves as the the Bible understands them, as friends of Jesus Christ, friends of God? What if the most transforming relationship in our lives was that one with Jesus? And prayer becomes the conversation, the thing that, that... changes our lives, a transforming friendship. So prayer, it's talking to God. I don't want to make it any more. I don't want to tie it down any more than that for you this morning. Prayer with others has become important in, in church. Uh, churches have understood that from day one. I've noticed this in Acts recently, in the early chapters of Acts. I had a quick look again to see how often the the early believers, met to pray together. They met immediately after Jesus' ascension. When he left them, the first thing they did was was meet to pray together. They met when they chose a new disciple, Matthias. They met in Acts 2.42, we're told of a famous post-Pentecost passage. When Peter and John met the lame man, they were on their way to the temple to pray. After they were released by the Sanhedrin, after being questioned they immediately got together with other believers to pray i noticed a thing recently that really struck me in the early church when they were making staff appointments whenever they were appointing the deacons whenever stephen whom you may know of emerged as a leader in the early church it was only after <coughs> excuse me only after a time of prayer asking that god would guide them to this uh, new member in their church community So we have opportunities to pray here in our church life together, and I've popped them on the screen just to remind you of them. I suppose my greatest worry would be that we ever try to make a formula of prayer or to restrict it to a certain expression. I'm very struck by Paul's teaching in Ephesians 6. I put in italics the word all or always for you. <clears throat> Do you see what he's saying here? Pray all the time about everything, wherever you are. Become a person and a group of people who, who are always in communication with God. Move from dial-up to broadband. Prayer's no longer a thing that you have to start up it's, it's a thing that's running. It runs all the time. Always, about all things, be praying. Folks, prayer is another huge area. We will be learning about this for as long as we live, so please don't be too frustrated by what we haven't thought about this morning or, or the very quick way in which we've dealt with this. I want to close just for now. And I wonder what you make of these promises that we've been looking at this morning. This has been a a wee bit dry this morning because we've been charging through and and I want to apologize for that but I, I want to take a step back and ask you what you make of all this. And I want to hazard a guess. For those who have already made these vows at some time in the past, I'm guessing that at least a number of us are looking at those and thinking, flip, Did I promise that? And we'll be saying, well, maybe I promise to be regularly at church and regularly reading my Bible and regularly praying, but I'm not not winning on all of those just now. And what about people who are here this morning and are wondering whether they might be able to be communicants and make the commitments that that we're thinking about here these days, do you look at these and just think, there's no way. I couldn't possibly do that. Can I encourage you this morning not to look at these commitments as totally unobtainable standards, uh, something that as soon as you fail, you're out, that that God is is then displeased. Can I encourage you instead to see these as, as putting on paper just some of the practices that are important to disciples of Jesus Christ. We know that if we practice these disciplines, we'll grow. And in that case, we're glad to make these commitments. These are the things that in our heart of hearts we want to do. This is the kind of person that we want to be. This is what we aspire to. Friends, if you can do that, or if you can reaffirm that, then I think you're in a position to make and to reaffirm these vows. These things aren't here to make life difficult for us to be with God. They're here to bless us and to help us. A communicant is a disciple of Jesus Christ who is growing. Let's pray.